Well, if you have your Bible, let's make our way to two places. If you would, go to Matthew chapter 28 and hold your place there and find 1 John chapter 2. So Matthew 28, 1 John chapter 2. Just to say a quick word here about man camp. It was just brought to my attention this morning that they have apparently changed the way that you register online. And I guess there's been some confusion uh, from others. So if you go, if you plan to go to man camp and you go to fortbluff.com to register and you have a problem, then I have a phone number up here uh, for you to call. Or you can just probably Google that too and call the office directly and, uh, and talk to them about that. All right, well, today I want us to take a look at the, uh, the Great Commission that Christ gives us in Matthew 28. Because sadly, as Christians, I believe that we have overlooked and we have looked over the importance of making disciples who make disciples. And I want to start with a story about the danger of hearing the Word of God and not obeying the Word of God. So I want you to imagine that you work for your employer and he's getting ready to uh, go on a long business trip overseas. He's going to be gone for an extended period of time. And so he calls his executives together for a meeting and they all meet together and he tells them, hey, I'm going to be gone for a couple of years and I am putting you in charge of the company. And he said, you don't have to worry because every couple months I'm going to send a letter that tells you exactly what to do and and how to do it. And so the executives uh, agreed. They were on board. They said, "Okay, you know, I think uh, I think we can do this. And so the executive goes off on his trip and he comes back a couple of years later to find that the business is just a mess I mean, he walks on the property and there are weeds overgrowing in the flower beds. And he notices in the front of the business, there are a few windows that have been broken out. He walks in and he sees the receptionist at her desk and she's asleep. And he hears yelling down the hall. And so he goes and turns the corner and there's two or three men there who are just goofing off. And he hears music, loud music coming from another room. And so what he does is he calls his executives together to a meeting and in disgust, he says, what happened, right? I mean, did you not get my letters telling you what to do and how to do things? And the executives, they speak up and say, well, yes, we we got all of them. As a matter of fact, we, we love those letters. We read them over and over. They're really good letters. You know, we love them so much, we put the letters and we bound them together in a book. Some guys have even, they they love your letters so much, they've even memorized some letters. Whole letters. And you know, we, we like the letters so much that we started a Wednesday night study where we studied your letters. We love those letters. And of course, he would ask them, well, what did you do with the letters? They say, well, we, we didn't do anything with them. And sadly, I think we can fall in that trap as, as a church, can't we? Where we get so good at hearing the word, 
We even get so good at, at reading the words of God, but we don't actually do anything with it. The statistic is, uh, Andrew was just sharing with me in our discipleship group the other day, and uh, he, he listens to podcasts all the time, and I do too, and so we talk about things that we've read and things that we've heard. And he mentioned uh, to me the other day that he heard in a podcast that the statistic now is that in a church of 100 people, so that would be you know about a church of our size, that only about eight people actually read their Bible, memorize scripture, and multiply themselves. And uh, I thought, you know, that's, that's perhaps, you know, very true. And I thought, you know, Jesus Christ, when he comes back, and he is coming back, amen, I'm ready for him to come back. And pastors preached a series of messages on the, the rapture of the church, and I'm looking forward to his return. But when Jesus comes back, he's not going to be impressed with how much of the Bible we've read. He's not going to be impressed with how much of the Bible we have even memorized. But he's going to expect us to have been obedient, right? He wants us to do what we read and hear in his word. So you say, well, where do we start obeying the Bible? Where do we start? Well, let's begin with Jesus' final command. And Jesus' final command in Scripture is what? Go and make disciples. Right? That's what he tells us. And he even tells us how we, how we do that. In Matthew chapter 28, look at it if you would please in verse 18. All right, Matthew 28 and verse 18. The Bible says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now, it's interesting that Jesus uses the word observe here in this passage. And it's the word for obedience, but it's really more than that. It means to persist in obedience. All right. In other words, it means to not just obey the commands of God, but you delight in obeying in the commands of God. You delight in the commands of God. That word observe is interesting because it's this idea of careful examination. Now, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not saying that when you obey the commands, you earn salvation, right? He's not saying that. We know that as believers, we can do nothing to earn salvation, right? So what he is saying here is, is that you don't work for your salvation, but I believe you work from your salvation. So he's saying you're, you're, you're not working to be saved, but once you're saved, you're going to work for God. And so I want you to see that obedience doesn't earn salvation, but I do believe this, and this is important. I believe that obedience is the proof of our salvation. I believe it's the proof of it. Did you know that Jews always expressed faith and displayed it through action? For the Hebrew mind, they wouldn't just tell someone what they believed, but they would act it out. That's why James says that faith without what? Works is dead, right? And for the Hebrew mind, the the, the way they showed love is that they portrayed it. They acted it out. Did you know this? This is interesting. 
Jesus Christ is never recorded in Scripture saying to anyone in the Bible the words, I love you. Did you know that? You can read all through, you can read cover to cover. Jesus never is recorded as saying the words, I love you. Now, he probably did, right? But it's never recorded. Now, would any of us doubt that Jesus loved people? No. Would anyone doubt that, that Jesus loves you as a Christian? Oh, absolutely not. Why? Because he explained or he demonstrated his love to us. Right? The, the Bible even says, no greater friend that you have than this, that a man would lay down his life for, for his friend. Or no, no greater love you have than a man would lay down his life for his friend. And so Jesus is, is, is saying the greatest act of love is what I did for you. Right? I gave my life for you. Uh, it's just like any relationship. Now, I'll, I love my wife. And I can go to her and I can say, honey, I love you. But I could go home and beat her to a pulp, and she wouldn't feel very loved, would she? But on the flip side, I could not say the words. Now, I think you should do both, right? I think you should love in word and deed. But I could not say the words, I love you. And I could go home, and I could fix lunch for her, and I could clean up the kitchen, and I could, you know, do the laundry and give her a foot rub. And she would know, without me saying it, that I love her, right? Because I demonstrated my love for her. And so that's what the Hebrew, when, when, you, when you read scripture, you're thinking with this, these Jewish people in mind, this is how they displayed their love. They proved their love through obedience. Now, this is what I want to do this morning. I want to give you a test. Okay? You weren't prepared to take a test today, were you? But I want to give you this test, and only you can take it. Okay? You can't take this test for anyone else. This test is, is for you, okay? And the test is to determine whether or not you're a believer, okay? So the Bible tells us, hey, this is how you can know that you know God. Look at 1 John chapter 2. I had you turn there. It's on the screen. And this is where we'll spend most of our morning. 1 John chapter 2, notice in verse 3, the Bible says, And hereby we do know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. Now, John is saying, hey, here's the test. Okay, this is how you know that you know God, that you have a relationship with God is if we keep his commandments. Verse four, he that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So I want to give you two parts to this test. Okay, the first thing you have to understand as we begin is, number one, the test is determined by obedience. Okay, and, and what I mean by that is this, this test, the test of whether or not we know God, the test is determined by obedience. The key word in the, in the epistle of John in this section is the word know, K-N-O-W. It's the idea of knowing something or understanding something, but it means different things to different people. Uh, we have to understand that, for example, classical Greeks understood knowledge as coming through reasoning. Okay, so humans would reason. We think of people like Plato and Aristotle 
they would meet uh, in public places, in the public square, and they would really debate. And they would never really come to a conclusion on anything, and that was okay. Hellenistic Greeks are different. They understood knowledge as coming through secret information. So if you knew the secret phrases, you could attain to this intimate relationship with God. We know this heresy as Gnosticism. You've heard of this probably. Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosis or knowledge. And they would say you have to have this secret knowledge to be in the club. Now Hebrews, Hebrews understood knowledge as coming through understanding of a revelation from God. Hebrews knew that knowledge didn't come just from filling your head with information, but knowledge came through intimate relationships. They understood and they knew things by spending time with other people. That's why John says in the text, this is how we are sure that we have come to know him. It's experiential. It happens through spending time with another person. John says it differently later in this epistle. Look at chapter 3 and verse 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth had not seen him, neither known him. Now, this is a very short epistle, okay, First John. The key word we said is no. It's used in this epistle 30 times. It's used again in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and, here it is, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. So here's the question that we have to ask. How do we know God? Right? How do we really know God? I would say that there's a Western way of thinking, and there's an Eastern way of thinking. All right, the Western way of thinking for us, okay, that would be us, knowledge comes through data, D-A-T-A. In other words, this is, we have this idea of to attain knowledge, we go to school, right? We get degrees, we fill our minds with just endless information. That's not quite how you know God, though. So for an Easterner, for the Hebrew, they understood knowing God through da'at. D-A-A-T in the Hebrew, uh, not data. This is an, inst- an intimate understanding. It's an intimacy between one person and another. Do you know where the first time we read this word know in Scripture? It's found in the book of Genesis. All right, look at it on the screen. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. Now, we understand This is more than just talking, right? I mean, not to get too graphic here, but Adam knew Eve, his wife, and they had a child. This is an intimate relationship. Okay, so for the Hebrew mind, he uses these words. How do we know God intimately? How do we really know him? How do we spend time with him? How do we know his heart? I would say, obviously, we have to do it through his word, right? We we know God through his word. When you foster a relationship with God, it comes through knowing God's heart. It comes through his word. We memorize the word. We meditate on the word. We we pray the word back to God. We listen to God. We know God through his word. And knowing, John says, leads to doing. Okay, so knowledge for the Hebrew always 
led to doing something. And John shows us that. He says, this is how, in our text, 1 John 2, this is how we are sure that we have come to know him. How, John? How do we know that we have come to know Christ? If you do his commandments, if you keep his commandments. Now, John, I have to ask this question. What are you talking about when you say commands? What commandments are you talking about? Because the Bible is full of commandments, right? There's 613 commandments in the Bible. John, which commandment are you talking about? Are you talking about all 613? Are you talking about particular commandments? Now, we know that when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he obeyed the Old Testament commandments perfectly, right? He didn't break one. But do you remember Jesus, when he came on the scene, he said, you can boil all the commandments down to two. What were they? You are to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And you're to love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's what John is getting at here. So when we know God, we know what God expects of us. And I think the outflow of that is that we would obey God. All right? Obedience. So that's the test. The way you determine if you're a believer or an unbeliever is by how you live. Here's two questions. Letter A, are you a professing person only? All right, are you a professing person only? John asks a few hard questions here. He says in our text, 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So he's talking about a liar. He's talking about someone who does not tell the truth. Okay, they lie to themselves, they lie to God. Now, when we lie as human beings, I believe that we take on the identity of the devil. You say, what, what do you mean by that? Look at John chapter 8 and verse 44. It says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And so notice what John says here in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4. Is that anyone who says he knows God. And this is, this is hard. Okay, this is a hard saying. Anyone who says he knows God. But doesn't keep his commandments. Is a liar. Now the, the two uh, key words here are know and keep. No, in the language of the New Testament, is in the perfect tense. Okay, the only thing you have to know about that is that it's, it's not used very much in Scripture, but when it's used in Scripture, it's very deliberate. And so when it's used here, he's saying this. When you keep the commandments, it's an action that happened in the past, but it has ongoing results. Okay, so what he says is this. A person who says... You know, there was a time when I raised my hand, I walked the aisle, I prayed a prayer, I trusted Christ at vacation Bible school or whatever, whatever your testimony is. If there's a time where someone says, I trusted Christ, okay, we can prove that by what you are currently doing. That's, that's the idea here in this passage. We can prove that statement, if that statement is true, by how you presently keep the commands. That word keep is the same word that's in the Great Commission. All right, we just read it in Matthew 28. Teach them to observe or or to keep or to obey. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
It's an interesting word. It's an ancient word that was used in the maritime culture of the day. See, in the first century, of course, there were no GPS devices, right? We didn't have Google Maps. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have garments. We didn't have a, a way to navigate. So what they would do is they would use the stars. And the captain of the ship would look at the bow of the boat, and he would look uh, at uh, the star, and he knew that that was a particular direction, and so he would set his course. And what they would say is that they are keeping the stars. That was the expression they used. We're keeping the stars. Now, as Christians, we need, or we keep the course of life, not by looking at the stars, but by looking at the Savior, Right. And so Jesus and his word is our direction. Now, do we get off course sometimes? Yes. Do we uh, get distracted in our Christian life all the time? But here's the important thing. We always reset our life based upon Jesus and based upon his commands. And so what John does is he uses that terminology and he says that these people do not present tense keep the commands. Here's what he's saying. These people who claim to be Christians, but aren't living like Christians, they're liars. Okay, these are people who have no victory over sin. These are people who have no abundant Christian life. These are people who have no desire to to work for God. These are people who have no desire for spiritual things. So he says these people are lying because they have no spiritual markings of a Christian. Right? There's no evidence that they truly know God. That's what John is saying here. Do you know what the spiritual birthmark of a Christian is? Now, there are many, but one of the spiritual birthmarks of a Christian is obedience. Let me put it this way. I want you to imagine that if you were coming into church this morning, uh, let's imagine that you had to cross a busy street to get into the building. Okay, so you're standing on the other side of the street. You're standing on the curb. And it's really foggy out and you can't see. So you step out onto the road to cross the street and you look to your left and there's an 18-wheeler barreling down the road. All right? And you're thinking to yourself, okay, do I go back on the sidewalk or do I go forward? And boom, you're hit. Now let's say by God's grace, you survive that. I think we would all agree that forever... There would be a visible difference uh, to our lives, right? We would, I'm sure, we would look very different. We would probably talk different. It would probably affect our, we would, I'm sure, walk different. Now, let me ask you this. If you were to come in contact with the God of heaven, don't you think there would be a, a spiritual mark on your life? Don't you think there would be an evidence? There's a difference that they truly know God. Absolutely, right? We would walk different. We would talk different. We would uh, start to think differently. I mean, this isn't just any person we're talking about. This is the God of heaven. This is the God that the angels will sing for billions and billions of years. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. This is the God that spoke the world into existence. He formed you. This is, this is God we're talking about. And if you have an experience, you have this relationship with God, don't you think that there's going to be a difference? I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not saying we have it all figured out. But there's going to be a noticeable difference. That, okay, that, that person, I can tell there's a spiritual mark on their life. John says anyone who claims to be a person of God 
and does not follow God is a liar. But secondly, look at our verse. He says they're lost. All right, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. All right, the, the same idea is found in chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, again, how do we know if we're a believer? How do we know that? I really believe this. I, I believe this. I really, really do. The, 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 the way we understand or the way we know that we're a believer is, is the pattern of your life. Is the pattern of your life one that is committed to following the Lord? Is that the pattern of your life? Now, on the flip side of that is a life against God. Paul tells us in Galatians 5, beginning with verse 19. And we don't have time to go into all these words, but you can get the idea. The works of, uh, of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And he gives this list. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told in time past, and notice this, they which do such things. In other words, this is the pattern of their life. This is what they're keeping. They which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's what he's saying, and I want you to write this down. The fruit of your life reveals the root of your heart. Okay, the fruit of your life reveals the root of your heart. The Bible says that a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So here's what he's saying, and I say it with great humility. He's saying that words alone do not prove salvation. Okay, words alone do not prove salvation. You can say all day long, Daniel, I trusted Christ as my Savior, and this is the, how it happened, and but let me tell you, if your life isn't currently bearing fruit, matching up with that, and, and man, I just I, I question, you know, I, I just question it. And it's not my place to say if people are saved or not, but we, we question that. Words alone don't prove salvation. I hear, I hear people say sometimes, hey, you know what, I'm good with God. You know, I prayed a prayer, and, and, and uh, I got baptized in the church, and I, I'm good. But they don't live like Christ, and they, they, they never come to church. They have no desire for spiritual things. It just makes me think. You don't check your salvation by the date you wrote down in the front of your Bible. Okay, you check it by the conduct of your life. How has Christ changed you? How are you different? Now, I'm not saying, again, that we work for our salvation, but I believe a person who is truly saved, they will work from their salvation. I'm not saying that believers don't struggle. Listen, we all struggle. We're all a mess. We're all in this constant battle. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Uh, uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 7, man, the things that I, I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I really know I should do this, I, I don't do. And he has this battle within himself. There, it's a struggle. What I'm saying is that a true Christian, I believe, will not remain in sin. 
A true believer will not live habitually in sin. Uh, you, I believe if you know Christ, you begin to have this love for the word of God and you begin to have a passion for prayer and you begin to have this desire to want to spend time with God and know God. You say, well, Daniel, why are you spending so much time on this? Well, I believe when you understand the problem and you're able to diagnose the situation, you're better able to give a prescription for how to help for healing. Now, I think you would agree with me. We treat believers differently than we treat unbelievers. We, we expect a lot out of believers, right? Because God expects a lot out of believers. But we tend to extend grace to unbelievers because they don't know any better, right? And so we say we need to give them direction. They're obviously lost. We need to help them. It would be like, let's imagine that we're going on a hiking trip, okay? And so we, we, we get on the trail, and we start walking down the trail, and we see this guy who is just decked out in hiking gear. I mean, he has the hiking boots, he has the proper attire, he has, you know, a compass and a map, and he just looks like he knows what he's doing. You would, you would think, you would just pass him on the trail and think, you know, he's good. Let's say you get a little bit further down the trail, and there's a, there's a man walking, and he's in dress pants and dress shoes. He's in a button-up shirt and tie, and he's got dirt on his face, and his map's all crumbled up. And he has this really confused look on his face. You would automatically think, okay, this is someone that needs help, right? This is someone that's lost. They just don't know what they're doing. Maybe we can help them. Then I think we should treat lost people the same way. You know, so many people say, and again, I say this with great humility, but they would say, man, I just want my kids to be saved. I just want my kids. You know, they, they said a prayer at six. And I, they say, I know they said a prayer at six, but man, they never come to church and, 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 and they're drinking and smoking and they're, they're just out living for themselves. They have no desire for spiritual things, but we're holding on to that prayer at six. I think, Really? I, I think we need to step back and have a conversation and say, do, do you really know Christ? Do you know Christ? If you did, you would, not, you would not be living this way. See, we carefully diagnose the, the situation. We realize that they can't clean themselves. They need to get saved. Sometimes we, we have conversation. I was talking to our uh, life group this morning about it. You know, we sometimes we wonder, like, well, you know, why isn't so-and-so here? Why don't they ever come to church? Why don't they ever get involved and, and do things? Why, why don't, and I, we, we say sometimes, you know, I wish they would just straighten up and get here. And I, and I want to say, maybe we should go to them again and have a conversation like, do you know Christ? Do you know him as your Savior? Maybe they need to repent and trust Christ. If you ever invite people to church, you've probably heard this reason for not coming. And I've had a few people tell me this in the past. You say, hey, we'd like for you to come to church. And it's, you know, maybe a complete stranger. And they, they'll say something like, you know, well, I, I need to get some things figured out first. I need to get my life cleaned up a little bit. And then I'll come. Uh, I think, and I've said to them, you can say the same thing. Well, 
you can ask them this question, when do you go to the doctor? Do you go to the doctor when you're sick or when you're well? Then why, why don't you come to the great physician? Just come as you are, and he'll clean you up. What John says is this, if you're a follower of Christ, but you don't live for Christ, you don't obey the commands of Christ, he's saying you're a liar and you're lost. That's a hard thing because I have people close to me in my life who, again, you know, I say, man, I went to church with them when I was a kid. I thought they were saved. Then I see the way they're living now and the way they've been living for several years. And I just have to think, okay, they, they don't really know Christ. They've never really met him. So he goes on to say, Something about born-again believers. And here's what believers do. Letter B, are you a practicing believer? 1 John chapter 2 and verse 5. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Here's what John is saying. A person's talk matches his walk. Right? I think a Christian, if they say a certain thing, they should act a certain way. Right? Bill Stafford said this, Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Try to say that three times fast. I like that. Your, talk, your walk talks and your talk talks, but your, talk, your walk talks louder than your talk talks. He's saying about a true believer that the things they say will match their life. What they say with their lips will match the walk of their life. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is this. When we walk according to the commands of God, what happens? Well, John shows us. He says the love of God will be perfected in us. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that the love of God would be perfected in us? I think it could mean three things, okay? A, is it God's love for man? B, is it man's love for God? Or C, is it generally just the love of God perfected when we obey? I think it's letter B. Okay, I believe, I I think what he's saying is this, when we obey God, our love for God is perfected. In other words, we begin to obey God the more we love him. Right, we love God when we obey God. Now, John gives us two examples of this. One is in the epistle, one's in his gospel. Look at 1 John chapter 2, again, verse 3 and 5. Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He's saying that our love for God is perfected. Now, I don't know about you, but I want more love for God. Right? I want to love God more. And he says in his gospel, John chapter 14, verse 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I love this, and will manifest myself to him. Okay, so here's, here's, the, pic- here's the idea. Andrew, do you have that picture of the triangle? All right, so... This is the idea once he pulls it up there. Okay, just to give you a visual. At the top is is knowing God. And what he's saying is this. The more you know about God, 
the more you love Him. And the more you love God, the more you obey Him. And this is what I believe. It doesn't just stop there. Because as you obey God, guess what? God will manifest Himself to you. God will begin to reveal more of Himself. Which in turn does what? If I know more of God, what happens? I love God more and I obey God. And it just keeps going around and around and around. I believe that's what John is, is saying here. And so the reason you may not be obeying God, you may be sitting here saying, I don't obey God. I'm not obedient to God. Then this is a very hard thing to say, but maybe you don't know God. Okay, if you're not obeying God, maybe you don't know him. Maybe you've never really given him your life. Because if you know God, you're going to love God. You're going to obey God. You can't help but love him. The more you love him, the more you obey him. It's all about spending time with God. Warren Wiersbe said this, You will never serve him faithfully until you love him fervently. So here's the question. Do you view the commands of God as restrictions to your happiness or as expressions of his love. Because how we view God's command is going to determine how we obey. Right? If we, if we have this view of God that, okay, God is out to get me, then we're not really going to obey his commands. Right? But if we, have, if we realize that God has given us these parameters by which he's put in place to protect us, we're going to obey him. And so, number one, the test is determined. The test of whether or not we know God, it's determined by obedience. But here's how John finishes. Number two, obedience is demonstrated through imitation. John closes this uh, portion of, the, of this epistle with a profound statement. Look at what he says here in our text. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. That word abideth is the operative word. It means to listen to God. It means to, to rest in God. Jesus said, if you abide in me and I in you, uh, the same will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So we abide in Christ. We, we listen to Christ. We spend time with Christ. We remain in Christ. How do we do that? The Bible says here we imitate Jesus. Why do we imitate Jesus? Because I believe in Scripture, obviously he's a picture of our Father, right? I mean, he perfectly—he was in the will of God, right? He demonstrated the power of God. He obeyed the commands of God. So we want to obey Jesus. Why? Because he was the perfect example. We can't find another example better than him to, to imitate and to follow. So the more you spend time with him, the more you love him. The more you love him, the more you obey him. It's like when you met your spouse for the first time. Okay, so you, you, you meet a girl and you, you spend time with her and you fall in love with her and you get engaged to be married. And then on your wedding day, you've probably maybe had this thought, there's no way that I could love her more than I do right now. That's probably what you, you thought on your wedding day, right? Man, there's no way I could love her more. But hopefully what happens, okay, the more time you spend time with her and uh, the more you what? The more you love her. Why? Because you're learning things about her. The same goes for God. We will love God more with what we know about him. You know, why, why, do I, why do I love my wife like I do now? Because we've gone through things together, right? We, we've gone through ups and downs. We, we've, we've had to make some decisions together. We've prayed together. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've gone through hard times together. 
and you learn more about your spouse. And, and my capacity of love for her has grown because why? My knowledge has grown. And the container that I'm putting things in about her has expanded. So the more I'm learning about my wife, the, learn, the more I know about my wife, the more I love her. The same is with God. I'm, I'm learning more about God. And just like our triangle, the more you know God, the more you love him. The more you love him, the more you're going to obey him. So how do I know God more? We've answered this. Read his word. One of my favorite times, I, I, just one of my favorite times is in the morning. I'm a morning person. I love getting up. And uh, I know some of you may think I'm weird for that, but I love mornings. It's just a, a new day. It's a fresh start. I love getting up and, and going and getting my Bible and just having time with the Lord. I love that routine. And Leslie would say the same. She, she does it too. I go downstairs and I see her. If she's up before me, I'll see her and she's, she's reading her Bible. She's marking it up. She's going through a Bible study. I love that. We, we love that time with, with the Lord to read about God, to hear from him. And then knowing leads to doing. So what I would say is it's not just about filling your mind with information, but it's, it's knowing God in order to obey God. That's the main goal in discipleship. Okay, pastor is going to, I think, here soon, he's going to start a series on discipleship, and he's going to talk to us about that. And the main goal in discipleship, and I think he would say the, th- the same thing, is that it's not just filling your mind with information about, you know, Bible facts and trivia. And although we do study the Bible together in our discipleship groups. But the purpose of discipleship is that we would learn of God so we could obey God, right? Put feet to it. We want to be obedient. Some of you, you, you don't need another Bible study. Okay, some of you may need to just take what you've learned in the Bible and pass it on to someone else. I, I told our, our teenagers this morning, I said, listen, you are out of the, I believe this. I said, you are out of the will of God if you are not discipling someone or if you are not being discipled by someone. You are not in the will of God if you are not in discipleship. And uh, you, maybe it's time for you to say, you know what? I've been saved for X amount of years and I, I have a good relationship with the Lord and, and I'm going to take someone I'm going to bring, bring someone aside. I'm going to multiply myself into them. Or maybe you, you, you may be in the situation where uh, I feel like I need to go and be discipled. I, I feel like someone needs to teach me. Right? But we need, we need to be in one of those two places. Dave Browning said this. The problem in most believers is not the gap between what they know and what they don't know. It's the gap between what they know and what they're living He said, we are educated beyond our obedience. It's not that we need to learn more things of the Bible. We need to start obeying the things that we already know. I want to ask this question as we close. What is God calling you to right now? Is God maybe speaking to you about a particular thing in your life? Listen, don't put it on. Obey, right? Disciples obey the commands of God. We need to obey. Maybe God is uh, putting a decision that, man, I need to make this decision, or I need to do this or that. He's laid it on your heart. Obey. I close with this story. C.T. Studd, many of you maybe have heard the name of C.T. Studd. Many years ago, he was preaching at a church about why he was leaving the field of athletics. And he was uh, leaving athletics to go help Hudson Taylor in China. He was going to be a missionary. Now, C.T. Studd uh, 
was a professional athlete. Now, it was cricket, okay, but still, in that part of the world at that time, that was a really big thing. You know, he lived in the UK, and he was a professional cricket player, and uh, really just well-known. And he left all of that to follow Hudson Taylor to China. And so anyway, he was in this, this meeting, and one of the people in the audience was F.B. Meyer. Okay, maybe you've heard of F.B. Meyer. Great uh, pastor and author and and uh, theologian. Anyway, C.T. Studd said something that pierced Meyer's heart. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, there is no sacrifice too great that I should not make for him. Let me read that again. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, there is no sacrifice too great that I should not make for him. And that, that really spoke to, to Meyer. So after the service, Meyer stood in line. You know, people were talking to C.T. Studd, and he was waiting his turn. And it got up to him, and he said, hey, uh, uh, C.T., my name is F.B. Meyer. C.T. said, hey, it's good to meet you. F.B. Meyer said, you know, you, you, you have something in your life that I don't have. He said, what is it? He said, without missing a beat, C.T. Studd looked at F.B. Meyer right in the face and said, have you given your life completely to Jesus Christ? I mean, this is F.B. Meyer. This is a pastor, theologian, author, you know. And F.B. said he knew in his heart, you know what, there, there is something that I haven't given to God. He thought you're exactly right. He said it was a turning point in his life. He wrote in his journal that night, went home and recorded some of these events. And he said he knelt by the bed and he began to pray. And he said he felt as if God had entered the room and was speaking directly to him. And he said that God asked him, or he told him, he said, I want every key to every room of your heart, every one of them. Effie Meyer said he reached in his pocket and he took out his keychain and he laid his keys on the bed as if to say, you know, God, here are the keys to my heart. He said God wouldn't leave him alone. He said, FB, that's that's not all the keys. You're still holding on to a key. FB fought with God. He said, God, but it's just it's just one key. It's just so insignificant. It's just a it's just an insignificant key, God. And and he said he felt as if God was saying to him, hey, if I'm not Lord of all, I'm not Lord at all. He said that message just kept ringing in his mind. If I'm not Lord of all, I'm not Lord at all. F.B. said that night, he just said, God, you can, you can take it all. At the bedside, he prayed. He said, take my job, take my career, take my family, take my future, take my kids, take my finances. God, take it all for your glory. He said that was the turning point in his life and ministry. And we still know about him today. We're talking about him. And you can look him up on the Internet. And he, he's done great things for God really used of God. Let me ask this. What could God do with your life if you gave him all of it? Think of that. What could God do if you gave him all of it? Every part. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Leslie's going to come and, and uh, play through a song. I do want to have a time of response. Think about that question. What, what could God do if I gave him my finances? If I gave him my future? What would God do if I gave him my, my marriage, my business? 
Maybe some of you are holding back your own life. Maybe you need to give your life, your very life to Christ in repentance and faith. Maybe you've never been baptized and you need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Maybe you would say, you know, I I believe I'm saved. I really do. I know the Lord. I love the Lord. But there are some things that I'm holding holding on to. I'm, I'm not fully committed to him. There's still just a portion of my life I'm holding on to. I'm gonna, Leslie's going to play, and we're going to keep our heads bowed, eyes closed. If, if you want to come and just pray here at the altar, just say, God, help me to be all in. God, I, I want to give you everything. I don't want to hold on to anything. I want to obey you completely. Or maybe you have someone in your mind, that uh, a loved one, a son, daughter, a coworker, who you think, you know, I I don't think they are saved. Maybe you want to come and pray for them. This is an opportunity for you to do that.